Welcome to the latest edition of CrystalCast. Today we're joined by Chris Roscoe and Sandra Catterall of Seneca Bridging, where we spend some time talking through the opportunities available to brokers in bridging and development finance, and why, despite all the talk of Brexit and the economic uncertainty, there are still some excellent opportunities out there for your property investor clients. Take a listen, I hope you enjoy the content, and as always, if you are a fan, please click on subscribe and stay tuned for more future releases. All information provided is for mortgage professionals only and should not be passed on to potential clients. So today we're joined by Chris Wasco, Relationship Manager from Seneca, Sharon Catterall, Head of Operations at Seneca, and Michael Fisher, Director of Development at Crystal. Morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. Thank you for joining us today. If we can start off in traditional Crystal Cast fashion uh, with three things that are surprising about you. Chris, do you want to go first? Okay, yeah, so uh, genuinely I'm a fully qualified plumber that works in finance. Um, I own a touring caravan, which I actually bought before I turned 30, um, and I've seen over 100 different uh, musicians live. Wow. Um, I'm a qualified phlebotomist, so I can take blood out of people, as well as lending money. Um, uh, I'm a member of the Caravan and Camping Club, so me and Chris are both, uh, I'm a motorhomer, Chris is a caravaner, <laughs> and I've got a small zoo at home, comprising of uh, six dogs, uh, two cats, two chinchillas, and 25 fish. Amazing. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so when looking at development finance at the moment, we've seen a, a few shifts recently in the market. Um, one of the big ones we've seen is maybe a shift from ground up development more towards refurb. Is that something you're seeing in, in your day-to-day life at Seneca? I'd say, I'd say it's always been a mix. Um, uh, there's probably, probably I'd say, a shift in the, in the opposite direction. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's less... PDR schemes going on. Um, some of the, the planning portals and the planning councils are, um, you know, a bit more reluctant to just hand out HMO licenses, uh, permitted development rights on the vast volume that have been done. And, and we've gone the other way from empty commercial units not being utilised um, to empty HMOs um, not being needed. Um, so uh, there's still there's still growth on both sides. Um, I'd say it's you know, but it, but by rights I'd say it's more shift to, to the ground up to to, to the refurbs. We're seeing, um, I have seen a shift in terms of the type of people wanting to do refurbs. Um, so, you know, over the last, um, since the recession, it's been experienced people wanting to do refurbs. And of late, we have seen uh, quite a lot of people with no experience that are just wanting to buy a house, do a refurb, a quick uh, uh, tartan turn, I think is probably the way we'd, we'd phrase it. Um, and we're seeing quite a lot of those uh, at the moment where inexperienced people are coming back into the marketplace. Okay, that's interesting. We've talked in recent episodes where landlords might be getting more involved in refurb than previously. Um, the historic model was buy something, keep it, um, and let it out. Whereas now we're seeing them look to add value to their portfolios. Is that kind of in line with what you're seeing there? Um, or is it even less experienced than that? Yeah, I think because we're more short-term funders, we probably don't get involved too much in uh, experienced landlords that have got big property portfolios because they will be funded by um, a, a longer-term lender, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we do see people who have property portfolios uh, buying um, properties that need a refurb at yeah. auction um, that, that we can obviously then fund. Um, so um, I think maybe you know the longer-term finance providers, uh, the banks that are, are generally cheaper rates than, than we are, are probably the ones who are going to see that kind of shift. Yeah, we've seen the, the need for bridging in that particular sector. Um, I've got a client at the moment who's 
his model has always been um, buy a buy to let, maybe add a room to it and then let it out from there, whereas now he's moving more into the commercial space, so buying a shop with one flat above and maybe splitting that into two or three. So he's needing to, to look at bridging, whereas before bridging wasn't really an option to him. Yes. Yeah, I think ultimately you've hit that on the head there, Chris. Um, the exits now, I'm seeing more retaining and exit being a refinance, so we're helping the clients all the way through the journey. Whereas before, a lot of my projects were definitely marketing three months before completion the exit via sale. So without a doubt, landlords are looking to increase the yields on the property, and the easiest way to do that, ultimately, is to buy something that you can add value on by refurbing it. We've also seen a rise in the number of refinancing of existing projects. How do you stand on that from Seneca? Yeah, I, I, again, uh, I've been in the industry for sort of three or four years now, um, and it, it's the same um, as, as Mike just touched on. Uh, you know, when I joined the industry, I'd say ninety percent of the exits that were being put to us were sell, sell, sell. Um, now it's it's probably more seventy thirty in in, in favour of a refinance. Um, there are, uh, you know, some lenders coming into the market doing almost bridge to let products. Um, and uh, the, some of the longer-term lenders are taking a bit more of a, a view on the on the LTVs, um, being a bit more punchy, which which fits with the original bridge model. There's also that um, taboo's been lifted. If a bridging lender's done the original finance, be it build the properties, convert them, um, refurb them, that you know, oh, it's got a bridging lender on there. We're not going to touch it. That's that's almost disappeared as well. So yeah, I, I'd say I, I agree with that. There's there's a lot more refinance exits being utilised than than selling the upper market. I think we see it particularly in sort of um, your average house prices and average apartment prices, uh, probably not so much in the, the high-end market. Um, high-end market is, is kind of, um, I think with all the uh, issues surrounding Brexit at the moment, I think the high-end market is probably the market that's been affected the most. Yeah, yeah again, I can, I can vouch for that. There's, there's fewer and fewer inquiries for, um, you know, million-pound-plus properties and, and certainly those kind of units in, in the London area that the market was flooded with certainly the, the bridging and development area um, there was tons of that knocking around two three years ago I, I very rarely see those kind of inquiries within it yeah likewise I see exactly the same I mean the only ones of the large single dwellings that I see really are the ones where there's actually a pre-sale in place yeah. as it stands at the moment and, and which, which is good for me because it's really where the lenders look at high uh, high value assets, large single dwellings, they, they really need to see something kind of concrete and, and sewn up, really, in the form of, you know, that money's held on the counter when the solicitor or, you know, a contract signed. With rebridging, it's always obviously been a, a bit of a taboo within the industry. Um, we're so, again, Michael, back me up on this, we're certainly seeing now more schemes that maybe have run out of funding initially or, or where someone's tried to do it themselves and then reached a, an impasse. How do you stand on rebridging? So, yeah, I'll take this one. Seneca's so, sort of, uh, we've always had a, an open mind on it. Um, we've never said no to rebridging, but we also, you know, we don't actively market it. Mm-hmm. It's a case of, does it make sense? Is there a valid reason for why it's gone over term? Why is the funder pulled out? Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of lenders that have struggled in the, in the recent years. Um, some peer-to-peer lenders have, have come and gone. Um, so again, you, you shouldn't penalise the customer for that. Um, if their existing lenders, you know, had financial problems or hasn't had the backing that was promised. However, on the flip side, if the client has just been lazy or has taken time with the planning or you know has chosen the wrong contractor and, and they're almost at fault for the scheme, then you know we'd probably take a view that that wouldn't fit with us. It, it needs to be a valid reason, 
um, and, and you know we'll, we'll, we'll look to uh, to help out if, if possible and if it makes business sense for, for all parties. I think that's one of the benefits of Seneca um, because we're such a small team and direct access to the uh, to the decision makers. We, we can have uh, not a one size fits all solution. Uh, we can tailor make um, our um, our thoughts and our credit sanctions in line with what we believe is to, to be quite sensible. Yeah. I think that's that's key. We've um, bridging's become much more popular over recent years. Yeah, the industry has has cleaned itself up quite substantially, and rates have fallen as a result. But what we've seen on the flip side of that is clients sometimes rate chasing, where they may be looking at the the interest rate rather than the the most suitable solution. So people taking a, a, a 0.4, 0 0.5% bridging rate when actually they should be looking at development finance, which especially when, when things slow down like they, they seem to be at the moment, that becomes an issue. Definitely without a doubt. I mean, the one thing people tend to look at when they're looking at bridging finance is thinking it's a quick and clean solution to a development problem. Now, what you find, though, is a lot of the bridging lenders who do branch out to your refurb and your development sites will, yes, it's a bridge, but they'll look at it from a development finance aspect. So you're not really avoiding any sort of the criteria, the underlying criteria the lenders provide, because you still have to have the building break sign-offs, monitoring surveyors and things. So it's, it's, it's now a case of, because the lines are a little bit blurred as it stands at the moment, educating the client kind of at the front end to make them feel comfortable with going down a more development, development you know, sort of route with people that are experienced over a longer period of time in that sort of transaction route. We do find that some of the rebridges that we see um, are because um, somebody has gone to the wrong funder in the first place. So they've gone to a, a very traditional um, bridging funder who doesn't properly understand the development market and as a, as a result, they end up getting quite nervous the minute there's a little bit of a little bit of problem uh, in, in the development. The only thing you can say with any great deal of certainty when you get involved in any development lending is the minute they put the spade in the ground, there'll be a cost overrun or there'll be a time overrun. And I think some of the traditional lenders, particularly where, as, as, as you touched on, um, you know, with the rate, uh, rate chasing, trying to get the cheapest possible rate in the market, those are the, kind of the ones that tend to get spooked the most. Uh, the minute something starts to go wrong, so we do find that we end up, um, you know, bailing those uh, developers out of that situation and uplifting those loans. So when we're talking about borrowers chasing interest rates, um, there's there's the trade-off there between lowest rate or high or maximum loan amount. Where do you guys see that? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's all about educating um, borrowers and, and brokers, um, but it, you know, it, it's really. Um, it should always be less about the rate um, or the loan amount and, and what's right for the scheme. Um, however, at Seneca, um, the sort of you know the marketplace we fit in is um, our rates are probably slightly higher than industry average. However, we don't compound the interest, which is key. So we don't penalise the clients for for not making monthly payments or you know rolling the interest up if they wish. Um, and our LTVs, we, we tend to be higher than most. You know, we, we understand certainly on a, on a development scheme, clients are going to need as much as they can day one towards the purchase. Um, and as we touched on earlier with the with the rebridges, um, if there's been a, a bridge done by another lender to purchase the site, um, and then they need as much as they can to, to refinance that onto a development product with us, you know, we we can we can accommodate that. We can we can go up to seventy percent um, against open market value, which which sets us aside from most and. As I said, we don't we don't penalise the clients with, with, with compounding the interest, which can save save a few quid over it over the term of the loan. 
interest rates always been an interesting one on bridging because we've always viewed the actual rate of interest more as a cost of the project, especially where development finance comes in. It's just another cost the same way as the builder or a QS. So for us, it's more about can you get the funds? Are they available? And is that the most suitable solution for the client? 100%. At the end of the day, paying a slightly higher rate of interest to get a deal done is far superior than not paying the rate of interest, arguing the toss over you know, rates and not, not being able to get something funded. Developers look at their margins at the end of the completed project. So yeah, absorbing that as part of the cost is, is, is the natural way really. I think it's also important uh, to consider um, when you're choosing your uh, funding partner that they properly understand the, the market that, that you're that you're in and, and I think if, if we understand the development products as well as we do at Seneca um, it helps along the way so um, another important factor for clients is the speed of the delivery of the funds um, so when we have a monitoring surveyor on site and the report comes in how quickly is it dealt with how quickly are those funds released and into the developer's account to settle uh, subbies or main contractor bills um, if there's delays to that that causes disharmony on site um, and can cause problems, uh, and that's when projects can overrun in terms of time, can overrun in terms of cost. When you've got, um, you know, disgruntled uh, subbies on site, I think we all probably saw the uh, YouTube videos of a, a disgruntled subby recently, and there's uh, a little trip of rampage with his digger. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and those things really do happen. <laughs> yeah, well, you're in quite a unique position here, aren't you, Sharon? Because you're a developer as well. Yes, I've done some development myself. So, uh, so when I look at schemes, yes, I, I definitely can. Uh, I look at all the aspects of the scheme um, and you know certainly um, some of the refurb projects that have come to me uh, of late I kind of look at it as well as having a, a developer's hat on and a funder's hat on um, I look at is, is it actually practical what's been put to me can this really be done so I, I think I um, you know certainly have been a, a voice of reason and a voice of advice um, I, sometimes a fool and the money are easily parted and uh, many true words spoken in jest, uh, but um, you know we do get schemes uh, sent to us that are, that are Ill, ill-conceived, ill-thought-out, and you know we say no to them for very good reasons that actually they just really don't work. Um, you know, I had a scheme put to me recently where somebody was buying a property for a hundred thousand. They were spending about fifty to fifty sixty thousand on it, and it was worth one hundred seventy-five on completion. When I start adding up all the interest and fees over the term, it's not worth them doing it. Yeah. So um, you know, and then you've got to consider the viability whether they've allowed enough in the budget for it. So very much uh, when I'm assessing schemes, I do have my developer's hat on as well. And that just comes back to what we mentioned about you know the, the rate versus loan amount, or the, you know the suitability of the, of the scheme and the product. Um, you know that ties into it. It shouldn't be about the rate. It should be about the suitability of the lender for that scheme and making sure that the right lender is being chosen um, to, to fund the project, depending on what that is, and, and less about what the rate is going to be going to be charged at the end. The industry will know Seneca from your development finance experience. Obviously, we've touched on that quite a bit this morning, and you were recently winners of the Development Finance Lender of the Year at the Crystal Ball. And congratulations for that. Okay. Um, but it's not only development finance you do, is it? You also do bridging. Yeah, um, and, and similar similar again to, to how we, we calculate the interest and, and, and the fees on our development finance our bridging is exactly the same. So all our fees are calculated um, from the net advance, uh, the arrangement fee uh, and the monthly interest payments uh, are worked out from the net, not the gross. So again, we don't penalise the, the clients with the, with the compounding of the interest um, and it actually entitles the clients to get a bit more on day one 
for our straightforward residential bridging um, uh, product, we, we can go up to 80% gross, uh, including all interest and fees, um, which runs to about 70% against open market value on, on day one. And we're one of a few, if not the only lender in the market doing that at the moment. Um, and you know that's where we want to we want to see an increase in, in, in our bridging. We want to get known as being bridging specialists as, as well as well as development products. Excellent. What kind of trends are you seeing on the bridging side of things at the minute? Everything and everything. Um, again, as as we mentioned earlier, um, there's a few rebridges um, knocking around. Um, the, the inquiries we've had in, in the last sort of couple of weeks have, have all been quite small stuff. Um, some that uh, the clients are just looking to buy, uh, maybe do a you know light refurbs themselves, and, and then flip onto longer term products. Um, so you know a bit of, a bit of everything is a mix really. Again, it pretty much sums up the way the market is at the moment. Um, we're getting we're getting all types of properties landing on our desk. We will um, review any um, residential bridges, uh, commercial bridges, and land with full planning, um, all on a non reg basis. We can also consider. Um just pure residential bridges on a non-status basis, which means it cuts down a lot of the underwriting process for us. Um, not that we're particularly slow uh, to underwrite. Um, we, we can turn things around literally in a 24-hour period for, from getting uh, all of the information uh, sent and packaged to us. Um, but it just, it just helps if we've got um, a residential um, bridge and it's under 300,000, it's going to have the lightest of touches uh, going through the, uh, the underwriting process. So as Mike touched on earlier, brokers and clients expect bridging at times to be very swift, very easy, very light touch transactions. So it's kind of facilitating that, that view that they have. Absolutely. So far in 2019, obviously, we've um, there have been numerous changes, tax changes, political issues, etc. Um, where do you think the opportunities lie in the market currently? Yeah, I think um, you know Brexit, one way or another, whatever your views on that are, um, there's going to there's going to be a level of uncertainty. Um, the, your banks and your high street lenders are always going to, you know, they're, they're always being a bit reserved in in current times, and you know we've had a few big recessions over the last few years. Brexit still causing uncertainty. So for us and the rest of the bridging and development market, there's there's always opportunities there. I think they'll never, you know, the the, the high street lenders and the mainstream lenders will never do everything that the the subprime mortgage market does. Um, and it's just about getting, you know, getting Seneca's name out there, show what we're capable of, and, and increase business. Um, as we touch, we're, we're great at development. We've got a, a long running history and track record of, of those schemes. We want to get known in the, in the bridging game the same. So, we, you know, we're, we're pushing on our marketing and, and our products uh, around the, the straightforward bridging world. I think the bottom line, even though Brexit and the uncertainty that Brexit's creating, um, you know, we still have a fundamental problem in this country, and that's we've got a shortage of housing. So, and that, that isn't going to go away. And I think the amount of um, uh, the length of time that Brexit is taking, whether you were a Remainer or you were a, um, a Brexiteer, um, I think people just want to see that deal done now. Um, and we're certainly not seeing um, a reduction in the number of schemes coming across our desk as a result of uh, developers or investors being nervous about entering into the market, which is good. Mm-hmm. We have seen a, a bit of a tempered appetite uh, in high-end property, which I think we touched on earlier. Uh, the London market, um, you know, where you, you traditionally get your high-end values. Um, and I, I think certainly from Seneca's point of view, we are definitely favouring uh, average house price stock. So anything that comes across our desks, um, maybe over a million pounds, uh, that would be the, the, the kind of stock that we would uh, be a bit more reserved on, really, uh, in, in these uncertain times. But, uh, but certainly, um, you know, we're not reining in any of our uh, products at this moment in time um, as a result of Brexit. 
I think also there's been there's been opportunities outside of London. This this whole Brexit and the, and the recession we've been through in the, in the last few years, as you know, people have realised there is life outside the M25. Um, you know, we've done several schemes up in in Scotland, in the North East, in the Midlands, um, you know, South Wales, and, and and that's great for for the country as a whole. And and you know, it's it's doesn't put us off that it's not in London. We you know, it's we will lend all over all over the, the country in Scotland and Wales. Yeah, I think Sharon hit the nail on the head, really. Uh, regardless of what side of the fence that you sit on, a decision and a line of needs to be drawn now. Um, what you are finding is the less speculative developers, the, the more cautious guys who are looking to jump into the first or second schemes, I think ultimately they've been put off. Um, the more seasoned professionals who kind of traded through the big crash in, in 2008, they tend to be a little bit more um, pragmatic with their attitude, and going into the schemes, knowing what the pitfalls are, and the chances are, if they have, if, if they have traded with the previous recession, then they've got enough skin in the game and a little bit of cash flow to be able to get them through it. Um, the one thing I'm seeing um, in terms of exits is with the apartment block schemes, where a lot of it is off-plan sales to foreign nationals. There's definite reduction in kind of your Far East investors and people from the Middle East looking to retain properties in England. So I think there's a bit of a more cautious approach there. So what I am finding is a lot of my exits, if they aren't refinanced and they are sale, is, is going to the, you know, the, the general public in, in the UK rather than overseas investments. So where do you see the market heading for the rest of the year? I think it'll stay pretty buoyant. Um, I don't think Brexit's, Brexit's had a massive impact one way or another. Um, the sooner they get on with Brexit, the better for us all. Uh, there may be a period of you know, uncertainty post-Brexit, whichever way it goes. But I think certainly by the end of the year, we'll, we'll be back where we were. And you know, we've, we've seen massive growth in, in the first quarter of the year. And if it continues, we'll, we'll have our best year at Seneca. And that's what we're aiming for and, and to smash it again in 2020. I think ultimately it's going to be a massive influx of inquiries the day the Brexit decision is actually made. Uh, things are only going to get bigger, people, the cautious people are going to be back in the game. All the people that have land banked at the moment that are sitting on the really, you know, the larger unit schemes, maybe 160, 150 unit plus schemes, all of a sudden are going to be looking again for the finance and, and sharpening the pencils. Yeah. I think, Sharon, you touched it, I touched on it earlier. Um, the UK's got a housing problem. And that's not going to go away regardless of what happens with Brexit. Absolutely. So at some point, people will see the opportunity. And if they are holding sites, Mike, then at some point they need to open up and the market becomes more liquid as a result. Yeah, without a doubt. There's, I've spoken to a lot of developers, a lot of it, kind of our seasonal clients that keep coming back. Of, you know, we've constantly got things on the back burner. And, you know, they've, they've made it quite clear that they've got a couple of plots of land and such that they're waiting to kind of release once and they know about the costs because it's not just about the appetite to sell really what, what the, the contractors are doing they're worried about the increasing cost of materials as well and you don't know what impact that's going to have and there's a huge bearing really on them you know when you're working with tight margins which a lot of developers do now you're 15-20% yeah. they need to you know be insure, you know, ensure that all these materials and the labour costs aren't going to just jump through the roof and you know then we, we talk about the sale of being people's appetite to buy, but, but really it's profit margins on, on the actual the contractors that's, that's probably driving that cautious approach as much as you know, the, other, the other reason. So to finish up then, the traditional crystal cast question, if you could make one change to the industry, what would you do and why? Chris? Yeah, for me, it'd just be a greater exposure of our industry as a whole. Um, you know, I think the, the regulators and the, and the high street lenders uh, and, and your large 
um, you know, mortgage brokers and the likes, they almost forget that we're all here, um, you know, screaming about how wonderful they're all doing and, and how much we can help clients. Um, it's it's nice to see that over the years, the taboo of bridging and development finance, certainly in the short-term game that we're all in, um, has been lifted and is lift, lifting, you know, at a rapid pace. But I, f- I think we can still do with more exposure to, to your average job. Um, we're here, we can help you, you know, we're, 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 a, we're, not, um, you know, we're not a means to an end. When the client goes into his bank to, to speak to his bank manager and he needs a short-term bridge or short-term development finance, um, you know, we don't get a look in and uh, it'd be nice if that changed. Sharon? Yeah, just to totally echo some of Chris's thoughts, um, there has been a stigma in the marketplace. I think, um, you know, some traditional borrowers uh, seem to think that we have lower standards, um, we're more aggressive um, if schemes start to go wrong, uh, and you know there's there's a, a, a trust issue there, um, and certainly what I've seen you know through, from Seneca's perspective, you know we we are actually good at what we do, um, because we've got um, a strength of knowledge there, um, we are able to work with clients probably far better than your traditional institutions uh, such as the main high street banks who the minute it becomes a problem you get pushed into a problem management unit then onto recoveries um, and you're just going through a process rather than a personalised approach and I think a lot of the smaller lenders are more personal. Mike? I think really the, the one thing that I would change is, is, is a more streamlined approach to our interest is illustrated with the lenders I think when you work in this industry where there is an element of suspicion and caution with people that haven't used bridging finance, haven't used development finance, and you know there's, there's a multitude of options across the board from the north to the south of England, and everyone's got money to lend, and everyone offers you know great products and services. If there was just something in place that had a streamlined approach towards illustrating interest in exactly the same way. It would, you know, pay dividends for transparency, really, and the clients would be more informed. It would empower the brokers to be able to explain things a bit more. And ultimately, I think that's the one single change that would, would have a massive impact. Well, thank you very much, everyone. There's some really interesting content there, and I hope our brokers find it useful. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. To hear the rest of the series and be notified first of future episodes, hit subscribe. And to discuss any of the topics covered in today's Crystal Cast or any other specialist finance requirements, call us on 01827 301070 or visit our website at www.crystalsf.com. Thank you to today's guests and as always, thank you for listening.